Welcome into the Intersection Podcast. I'm Brennan Casera, and today I'm joined by Andy Schwartz, the Chief Innovation Officer and co-founder of the Professional Collegiate League and an economist specializing in antitrust, class actions, and damage analysis. Andy, thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate it. How are you doing today? I'm good, thanks. Thanks for having me on. And we're, we're here to discuss the Austin versus the NCAA case. Um, just for the audience, you know, people who haven't followed or aren't so, uh, too familiar with the case, uh, can you just explain what the case is and uh, why it's so important to the NCAA? Sure. Um, uh, with the caveat that, that I am an economist who worked on the case, I'm not a lawyer, uh, I do a lot of antitrust work. And essentially, Alston is a classic antitrust case, which says that when independent businesses that get together and set a maximum price that they're willing to pay for goods or set a minimum price they're willing to sell their goods, um, generally speaking, that's prescribed by the, uh, the Sherman Act, the, which says that um, conspiracies to set price are illegal. Um, and um, you know, the NCAA has found to be, has been found to be a price fixing cartel with respect to its TV broadcasts in the eighties with respect to coaches pay in the nineties. Um, and this is in some sense, a continuation of that trend. Um, there was the O'Bannon case, which found that when the NCAA got together and said that schools could not um, include any money in a scholarship to cover name, image, and likeness payments, that that was illegal and that was changed. And that's how, uh, schools now pay cost of attendance scholarships that they didn't before. And this case was about whether or not um, the NCAA could set uh, limits on any compensation above a scholarship. Um, and it ended up being narrowed by the time we got to the Supreme Court about whether or not the NCAA could set limits on educational payments. That's not how it started. But essentially, right now, I'll give you an example. The NCAA allows a school to pay $10,000 to two athletes a year who graduate so they can go to grad school and they can go anywhere with that $10,000. And um, the court said, well, if you can give it to two, there's no reason because of amateurism that you can't give it to everyone. Um, and they said, and if you can give them more than zero, if you can give them 10,000, there's no principal reason why you can't give them 20,000. Um, and that's sort of where we are, which is whether or not um, it's, it's legal for there to be a national cap that covers every school on how much um, educational compensation athletes can get. Um, there's more nuance to it, but it, it went to the Supreme Court on two sort of grounds. One, one was the, we're the NCAA and uh, we should have the right to define what the limits of amateurism are. Uh, and it really, it really shouldn't be the courts, the court shouldn't even look. It was essentially saying, look, the court made a mistake by saying, um, let's take a look and see if this is good or bad. They should have just said, it's good. I know it's good because it's the NCAA. And that by looking, even though they found that it was bad, they had made a mistake. It's almost like uh, if you didn't get a search warrant, we can't use the evidence in court. But this is civil litigation. We don't have, there's not search warrants and things like that. So it's sort of an unusual argument, which is the court should have assumed everything is fine. And yeah, I know they looked and everything wasn't fine, but they shouldn't have even looked. Um, and then the other one is very, very technical and, and it won't interest everybody else, but whether or not the, the legal process, when you test people's arguments, 
whether they did the steps in the right order. And, you know, when it comes to the Supreme Court, it, it seemed as though they were surprisingly aggressive in their questioning. Uh, you know, they typically a more conservative group that, you know, Clarence Thomas was outspoken and, and it came to the surprise of, of many. Um, were you surprised by that? It seemed like a lot of the questioning was against the NCAA and, and really, you know, some people have said maybe they're just trying to play devil's advocate, but some people have also said, you know what, this is, you know, the Supreme Court is kind of trending maybe against the NCAA here. Were you surprised by their aggress uh, aggressive questioning? Um, I was. I should caveat that by saying that I'm a cynic and a pessimist. <laughs> so when I heard that the court took this case, I assumed in my pessimistic, cynical way that it was because they wanted to side with the NCAA. And I think if they had wanted to side with the NCAA, like if, if the fix were in, those were far more aggressive questions than if the fix were in. I agree with you as a, not as a, as just a citizen who's observed other Supreme Court cases and listened occasionally to oral argument and things like that. You can't always tell from the question whether they're what they think, because sometimes they ask the question, sometimes the question is being asked so they hear, they get the response that they want so they can write that down in an opinion. And sometimes the question is asked because they don't know yet. And when they get a lame answer, um, they, they go, oh, I'm not gonna go with you. So we don't know, but I didn't expect Justice Alito to be so anti-NCAA. I didn't, Clarence Thomas was more mixed, but I didn't expect what he did say, you know, um, the NCAA, the Clarence Thomas our question was, if this is an amateur, why are the coaches paid so much? And the NCAA thinks they have a good answer for that, which is, well, everybody else is professional, just not the athletes, which I, I don't know who they focus group that one on. Cause it strikes me that that sounds like really, really cynical, even for me, which is like, oh yeah, we know we're exploiting the athletes and we know we're not allowed to exploit anybody else, but we are allowed to exploit the athletes. So let us keep doing that. And I'll give you an example. The coaches, like, I think, I hope Clarence Thomas knows that in the 1990s, there was a case called Law, L-A-W, the NCAA. It was the guy's last name. It's not the law. And um, the NCAA had been restricting the, the, the third assistant basketball coach to $16,000 a year in pay. It was a new rule. Previously, some of those coaches had earned in the 50,000 range, and this is in the 90s. So 50,000 then is probably like 75, 80,000. I haven't done the math on that, but, you know, a decent starting salary. And they restricted it down to 16, which was sort of what you'd get on a graduate school stipend back then. And I know that because I got a graduate school stipend back then for 13,000. Um, and um, the courts were like, this is ridiculous. And, and so they didn't even go to trial. They, the, the NCA lost on, um, on summary judgment, if I remember right, which is a fancy way of saying that there's, we look at this and there's no way possible that a jury could rule in your favor. So we're not even gonna let it go to trial. Um, and they just ended the case. And um, the argument there was people, humans, Americans have a right to a competitive market for the fruits of their enterprise, I think was the term that they used. Basically, when you go into the market and you want to sell your services, all the people who want to buy it can't, can't get together and say, oh, well, we only want to pay $16,000. Well, so that's the exact argument that they're using here, which is like, oh, well, um, you know, zero and scholarship only. 
and and zero salary, zero incentive payments, zero signing bonuses, uh, zero promises to pay for medical school when you finish, which is purely educational. Um, and um, so maybe Clarence Thomas asked that question so that he can say, just like in the coach's case, you can't deny people the fruits of their labor. And that's a very conservative, that ought to be a very conservative viewpoint, which is we want to reward people for hard work. The way we reward people for hard work is that if they're better at something than someone else, we allow them to earn more through the market mechanism called competition. But the reason I was cynical going into it is that I'm not so sure that the Supreme Court is so much conservative as corporatist, meaning we like corporations to be strong and labor to be weak. And, and you can look at athletes in this case as being like labor. It's like, you know, we want to earn a wage and all, all the bosses are saying oh, no wage for you. Um, so, so anyway, but yeah, um, if people go back and read, listen to that and they want to read it, I would definitely check out what Elena Kagan said. Elena Kagan, I think, put it just the most succinctly, which is you say this is about the love of amateurism and people don't want it. But like, isn't this just a bunch of firms getting together and price fixing wages? And then I heard that being echoed in some sense by Brett Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett. And that's an odd alliance. I know we don't know much about uh, uh, Justice Coney Barrett yet, but from I think what both both her proponents and detractors would have said going in was that she was not going to be asking questions about whether she said something like, you know, what you're arguing is that there's a customer preference here for the athletes being poorly paid, underpaid, something like that. And she goes, and that, you know, that's kind of disturbing. Yeah. And they use, or the NCAA uses that amateurism argument a lot, uh, especially in, in a situation like this, we've heard about it a ton and, and you, we've touched on it a little bit. Can you explain or elaborate a little more just to the audience what that what, what the NCAA is able to say or, or, or do to, to claim amateurism basically essentially uh, to possibly get out of a case like this? Yeah, I think this is important and this is this is why economists like me work in sports litigation cases because if um, Typically, let's just say, um, uh, let's just say that a bunch of restaurants in, in, a, in a major metropolitan area, all the restaurants in a major metropolitan area, got together and said, "Well, um, our customers don't like uh, waiters or waitresses that earn a wage. Um, they only want them to work on tips." Um, and so, even though there are minimum wage laws, and even though in some states minimum wage for a waiter or waitress is lower. Um, we're not going to pay them anything. We're, I know the general rule is you got to pay minimum wage, but, but we have a customer. We're defining our product, and this is important because the NCAA, we are defining our product is food served by unpaid waiters and waitresses. They wouldn't, that, 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 that association, the National, National Restaurant Association, would not succeed in saying we have to conspire amongst ourselves to meet customer demand. An economist like me would come in and say, if there really is a preference among uh, consumers for no wait, no don't no wages to your waiters, um, food being served, just 
just offer in the marketplace. Now, I know it's violating the law, but but there's no reason that you guys need all need to agree to meet this one particular customer preference. Because if it's really, if, it, if it's universal, then no one's going to go to a restaurant where people are being paid. We wouldn't see demand for paid for paid uh, waiters. And now imagine it had always been the case, or like there was two kinds of restaurants. There were professional league server wait, wait, restaurants and amateur server restaurants. And they said, like, you know, um, uh, we would see, we would see business go towards the amateur side that like, well, you know, I know those professional waiters are actually good, but I don't like the idea of being served food by someone who's paid to do it. I want them to do it for the love of the meal. And um, like um, essentially economists can assess whether or not that argument allows a new product to come into the market than otherwise would. The NCA argues if it weren't for if it weren't for our agreement, no one would produce amateur sports. So now I was not an expert in the case, but I worked for the experts and with the experts. If I had been the expert, and I think versions of this were said by the experts, I would have said, and I've written papers about this, um, if, um, if there is a strong demand for some a product feature, and it just so happens that that product feature lowers the cost to produce it because not paying football players and basketball players is cheaper than paying them. You will see companies flock to that business model. Cheaper to make, customers will pay more, win-win. And you don't need to agree with your competitors to do that. And in fact, it's not really gonna be in your competitor's interest. Like, oh yeah, well, if I do it and they don't do it, they'll get all the, the, the they'll pay more and get all the customers. All the all the all the good players who or they'll get whoever they want because they're paying and I'm not, and I'll be like, yeah, but they're not going to get any revenue. No one's going to watch their games. So how are they going to be able to afford? Why? Why? What is their incentive to pay to lower interest in their product? That's the opposite. Like, oh gee, let's let's make a product that has higher costs and lower revenue. And the silly example I always give is imagine like all the coffee, coffee shops in town don't need to collude not to put plutonium in the coffee. Plutonium is really expensive. And if you know there's plutonium in the coffee, it has really low demand. And so we don't need a conspiracy to prevent expensive demand decreasing features from being added to products. The market handles that. And so that would be my argument is that if in fact the NCA is right, that consumers will run in horror from a paid college sports offering, then a paid college sports offering is, um, is not a market outcome we will see. Instead, when the NCA argues, if we didn't have a cap, everyone would pay their athletes. That's a recognition that everyone thinks that if they pay for a little more quality, they'll get more customers that their customers will like it more. And we don't really have to speculate on this because as I mentioned in the O'Bannon case, that case led to a change in the maximum that athletes could get. Prior to O'Bannon, they were limited to tuition, fees, books, room, and board, and that's it. Now they're entitled to tuition, fees, books, room, board, and a check and cash of an amount that covers living expenses and travel expenses 
which is $3,000 to $6,000, depending on what school you're at. Some maybe, let's say $1,000 to $8,000, a full span. That means that in 2015, August of 2015, a lot of athletes started getting paid a small salary, $3,000, $4,000 a year on top of their scholarship. Some schools didn't do it. Do you want to guess which ones were the more popular? It's the ones that were paying. Okay, well, they were more popular before. Right. Well, we didn't see really any move of like, oh, I'm going to stop watching Ohio State and I'm going to go watch Tulsa football instead because at first Tulsa didn't pay COA. Um, there was an even better experiment in basketball. There were nine schools that said, we will not do it. As a matter of principle, we think paying cost of attendance stipends is professional and violates the concept of amateurism. And as institutions, we don't believe in it. And among them were Elon University and James Madison University. James Madison's fans revolted. And within a year, James Madison started pay paying cost of attendance. The fans were happier when that happened. Elon held out a couple more years. Elon is now doing it too, for the same reason, which is that they felt that the quality of the team that they were able to get, um, was too low and their consumers didn't like that. Whereas once they started paying them, the consumers liked it again. It was like, it was like the exact opposite, which is that what fans care about, and this is my hypothesis, they care about two things. They wanna watch good basketball mm -hmm. played by college students. And it doesn't matter if they're paid, if they're walk-ons, if they're scholarship athletes, if they're in the Ivy League system, if they're in D2 and they're getting partial scholarships, if they're in the US military and they're on a salary, if they get cost of attendance stipends now, or pretty soon if they're doing advertisements and getting paid for their NIL, or if they're flat out salaries, as long as they are real students going to that school, they are college athletes and that's what matters. And we may never get to that test because even if, if the Alston case is, if, we're, if the plaintiff side is, is victorious and, and these educational payments are, they're educational payments, they're not salaries. Um, but we'll find out now, well, will people stop going to, to the games if people can get, say, a $5,000 a year um, good grade bonus, which is one of the options that might be available. And if, and if, if they're fine with that, then it's, I think it's increasing. Every single time the NCAA predicts no one will watch if, then they do it and everyone keeps watching. It, it becomes a harder case to say, like, your crystal ball is just broken. Right. And, and it the NCAA is, is built up so many big brands and things that it's hard uh, to imagine people just turning away uh, completely uh, from that product. And when it, going back to this case, you know, what happens next? What do we expect next in this case? How long may it take for a decision? Um, you know, those kinds of things. What, what are you looking for next from this one? Yeah, so I have been told this is I don't know this for a fact. I have been told that the court will decide all of its cases uh, by July and probably June. Um, I think I remember in the last 10 years, there was one case that they said, oh, this is so hard, we're going to delay it for a year. So unless, unless it's a once a decade thing, we're going to find out in, uh, you know, uh, by July and probably June. Um, I, I can't predict. I don't know. If you had asked me going in, before I heard the arguments, I would have said, oh, it's going to be 6-3 against, or maybe even 7-2 or 8-1. Or, or like, Because I can make a story how, how a liberal judge, and in fact, if you listen to what um, Justice Breyer and even Justice Sotomayor a little bit said 
Justice Breyer was doing some devil's advocacy because he argued both sides. We don't know which side he meant. But if he legitimately believes some of the things he implied that are pro-NCAA, we could have a weird situation where, where we have Justice Alito, Justice Kavanaugh, Justice Coney Barrett on one side, and then just Judge Justice Breyer and Justice Roberts on the other side, and joined by Elena Kagan. You know, like it could be a very it, it could be one of those ones where the ideological lines just don't make sense. And so once I start doing that, it's like, you know, I took three poli sci classes in college, and I'm basing it on that. Um, uh, I don't know. So I'm I'm optimistic that the plaintiffs win. Um, I I do want to emphasize that despite the the doomsday rhetoric of the NCAA, and I might even say, and unfortunately, this is not going to end in amateurism. Um, I think amateurism, I think amateurism is a con on America. I think amateurism is a lie um, in the sense of people's interest in a product hinges on the underpayment of the producers of that product. So if you made an argument to me that a product like um, fair trade coffee is more popular than it would be based on its taste and its wrapper and things like that, if the, the workers were exploited, I can see that because I know that people want to be ethical and they want to, like, I want to make sure that my money is going to support people who are being treated well in the workplace. But can you imagine if there was the opposite? There was a coffee company out there called like, you know, horrible treatment coffee, you know, starvation wages coffee. And, and there was an argument like, well, we have to be able to offer this because that's what our customers want. So, so I get the idea that, that, the wage of the employees could be a positive contributor to demand, but I just, I have never, ever seen any evidence in any industry where people say, oh, these guys are overpaid, so I won't pay. Now, you might hear people go, ah, oh, but what about baseball? What about football? People don't like it as much now that, they're, now that they're superstars. People express an opinion that they don't like it much. But um, in the, the immortal words of Bobby Fleckner from the movie Spinal Tap, uh, money talks and bullshit walks. And um, people don't pay less for baseball tickets than they did 20 years ago. They pay more. And just as many people, more or less, go to baseball games, there is a little bit of a trend for Gen Z just not to go to sporting events and, and younger millennials. Um, but that has not, that's affecting amateur sports, too. Um, uh, there's really just no evidence that it's a little bit like how people write letters to the editor when they say, cancel my subscription. I won't read your magazine anymore. But like the number of people who do actually stop reading something because they're angry, um, it's quite low. I might even argue that people kind of like having something to get angry about. People kind of like complaining about baseball salaries at the game where they're saying they'll never watch the game um, because the baseball players make too much. And, oh, why didn't we sign him? What are we, a bunch of idiots? <laughs> um, lastly, there were concerns that I saw possibly about the Supreme Court maybe um, being too involved in the decision on the future of amateur sports. And that came from the Supreme Court, I believe, um, one of the members on the Supreme Court, if I remember correctly. Is that a concern to you about, you know, the NCAA might get their way in this because of this uh, scared attitude of, you know, we don't want to determine the future of amateur sports. 
Yeah, and so here's the spot where, like, you know, this is an incredibly arrogant statement by me. I wish I had been allowed to talk. Because um, I would have liked to have assuaged their concerns by saying what I said earlier, which is, um, if you're worried, if you think that loosening these floodgates, as it were, is going to create a flood, what you're saying is there's a lot of pent-up demand by schools to pay athletes. And schools' demand to pay for athletes is a reflection of their consumer base. And so what you're really saying is that you think amateurism is unimportant as a commercial good. Now, some of the questions that were asked were essentially, I think Stephen Justice Breyer said this, aren't non-economic things important? Shouldn't we care about, you know, motherhood and, and, and God and country? He didn't say those words, but you know, like, um, and if, if this is about the American way, like we don't pay our athletes, like shouldn't that be more important than economics? There is a lot, a lot of scholarship and, and legal decisions, as I understand it, which say it's fine if Congress wants to pass a law saying, um, you know, you can't pay for, for blood transfusions um, because we don't think that's good public policy, even though there's nothing economically wrong with selling your blood. Um, but, um, but the courts interpreting the antitrust law are bound by questions of things related to antitrust and antitrust is inherently economic. So they would essentially, if, if they were to explicitly, if they were to say something like, yes, we know that there's no economic reason for this, but it's tradition and tradition is good. That would be a, a groundbreaking decision that would, I would it would be horrible for America. It would be horrible for the, the current athletes. It would be great for the PCL, which is my startup league, because we would have free reign. We wouldn't have to compete with, with the NCA at all. We wouldn't have to worry about them ever make matching a salary offer. And we would become the best college basketball league uh, in, the, in the world without much competition at all. So go for it, guys. But, but in reality, I don't think they'll go there. What they might do, though, is have this squishy sort of of concern, like, which is something that will come out sounding, and this is just me speculating, come out sounding a little bit like this stuff is fine because it's educational. We haven't, we don't, we're, we're a little bit suspicious about money, money though, like pure money. So this is the end. Like, and they don't really, I don't think they really have the right record to say this is the end because there weren't facts established about what a true free market for athletes would be. And so then that's good for the athletes. It's, it's better for America. If, when I say America, society, our society is best when our economic systems are the right blend of efficient and fair uh, in their outcomes. And oftentimes efficiency and fairness are at odds. Oh, you know, like, like if, we, if we tax Jeff Bezos too much, he'll do less and the overall economy will be a little bit smaller. And they're like, yeah, but income inequality is a problem and we get, but in this case, it's win-win because the, the price is actually too low. It's, it's below the equilibrium. Letting the price go closer to the equilibrium price is actually efficient, more efficient, and it, it brings the money towards the people who, who, who earn it more. So it's fair and so that's good for America, but because it wouldn't go all the way there, it's not as good. In terms of the PCL, I think, I think our, we'll have the, if, if it's the case that we have the ability to make cash offers in addition to educational offers and they don't, I think that's a big advantage for us. And so, um, 
I'm torn. What I would really like as a, as a human is I would like the Supreme Court to come in and say, and they won't. You know what? The original idea of this case was right. There really shouldn't be a cap at all. Let the conferences compete. And, and Justice Gorsuch did suggest that, which made me happy. He maybe read one of my papers. If not, great minds think alike. And um, um, but the odds of that being the outcome, I think, are very low. And short of that, then we're going to be in a situation where, as with a lot of other things, the college athletes got some crumbs and maybe not crumbs, got some. That's the thing. If someone gives you give you something of $13,000 of value, like, hey, you get to go to grad school on us. That's not a crumb to somebody who has no money. That's a lot of value. But it's a crumb compared to what they're worth. Um, if they're worth $50,000 a year for four years and they get $13,000, that gap is what in economics we call exploitation, the gap between your market value and what you actually get because of, of firms colluding. And so, um, so yeah, I just don't know. They could come out and, and, and be anywhere from the unlikely, Andy's right, and we should just, if, if, if you need a cap, set it at the conference level and no more NCAA caps, that won't happen, but they could. Um, to a more likely, this, this ruling is fine, but we're really not comfortable with anything beyond it, which in some sense sets up a barrier to, yeah, you know, economically this all makes sense, but there's something, there's something more important here than mere money. And it's, and it's, and it is amateurism. I didn't hear kind of the kind of arguments that would, that would lend themselves to that. And I didn't hear even people soliciting those arguments. The only time that they were really solicited was by Justice Kagan, and then she shot them down, where she said, like, I don't really care what you said 100 years ago. Like, you know, uh, sounds kind of BS to me. Yeah, and Andy, thank you so much for joining us here on the Intersection Podcast. We've got a lot of great insight and a lot to pay attention to in the coming months here as the total landscape of the NCAA could potentially be shifting uh, depending on, uh, on this case. So once again, thank you. Thanks so much for having me on. Good talk to you.